Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email we send this out once a week it's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online apart from that there is a give button so if you're feeling led you can do that right online through our website you can also find us on facebook and youtube we are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that god's going to do something special in you through today's message enjoy Well, I wonder how many of you, um, do any, any of you know any goats? You, some of you know some goats, right? I, um, I'm wondering if, um, I'm wondering if, if you maybe know, now I'm not talking about the kind of goats with like the beady eyes that stare into your soul that are kind of weird. Mark and Carly, I don't think they're here this morning, so I can talk bad about goats because they get offended when I do because they've got goats. They love goats. Goats freak me out. They're a little weird. Um, but I'm talking about different kind of goats, Right, a goat, like like maybe this one. Maybe you know this goat. Who's this goat? Do you know that goat? Who is that? Muhammad Ali. It was actually I discovered his wife in the '90s that that coined the term goat. And you're like, what's goat? What's greatest of all time? That's what that stands for. A goat, greatest of all time. Isn't it great how many people just had a total revelation? Uh, don't worry, I was behind for many years as well, and I only figured that out a few years ago. What's with the goat stuff? And, there's a few things that I found out in a few different funny ways. It's like, that's what that means? Oh. Um, I won't share all of them because some of them are really embarrassing. But, but Muhammad Ali, right, uh, coined the greatest of all time as far as boxing. Even Mike Tyson had said he wouldn't last two rounds with, with Muhammad Ali if they were matched. That's, uh, believe it or not, that's what he says. And his wife was the one that, that, that supposedly in the 90s said, you know what, he's the greatest of all time, the goat. So that's what, the, that's what goat stands for. Here's other goats. What about this goat? Yeah, some would disagree. How many of you think LeBron James? Anybody here? I, I don't watch basketball, so I can care less. So um, uh, anyway, I grew up in the era of Michael Jordan, so he's, you know, I think he's the GOAT. How about this next one? There's another GOAT. Hey, greatest of all time. I mean, some, many of his records still standing. It's pretty unreal. Um, we've got some other ones here. Who's that? Serena Williams. Look at the muscles. I had to put that because... That her muscles are far bigger than mine. They may even be bigger than my wife's. Um, okay, and then the last one here, this is another goat. Anybody know? If you know who it is, Brandon, don't say anything. Kelly Slater. Kel- yeah. Kelly Slater, there you go. Some of you know who this is. Kelly Slater, this guy is the goat, no, like hands down of surfing. Because he is now 50, he's 51 I think now. When he was 50 years old, he won what's called the Pipe Masters, Pipeline Surfing Competition. In the finals, so he's won like title after title after title. And in the finals contest, um, the final heat, there's him and one other surfer. The other surfer was less than half his age. And he, he, he won the whole, the whole thing. Like unbelievable. He is truly like, it's just unreal what that guy has been able to do. Well, goats. Why am I talking about goats? Well, the last time that we were in Zechariah, Connor took us through uh, the first half of Zechariah chapter 9. 
So I should mention this as well. If you're joining us or new or visiting, as a church, for the vast majority of the time, we take a book of the Bible and we just walk through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Currently, we are studying the book of Zechariah. And a few weeks back, Connor took us through the first half of chapter 9 that had, if you remember, these prophecies about a certain Greek leader. What was his name? Anyone remember who it was? Who was the Greek? Say it loud. You're right. Alexander the Great, right? He, Alexander the Great, these first eight verses of chapter 9 prophesy about this king that would come, speaking really about Alexander the Great, who would conquer the known world at that time with relative ease and speed. Uh, I mean, he truly was great. But if you were with us a few weeks back, Connor finished with verse 9 of chapter 9, and that was a prophecy about a different king. And who was that prophecy about? Jesus. So we went from Alexander the Great to Jesus. And if Alex is great, well, Jesus is truly the greatest, right? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look, there's, there's many greats, there's many goats, but truly, Jesus is the greatest of greats. He's the goat of all goats, the greatest of all time. And so why don't you open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the seats around you. You, you need a Bible to follow along because we're going to cover a lot this morning, all right? So um, how do you find, somebody tell me, how do you find Zechariah in the Bible? What's the easiest way? I'm so glad that some of you actually listened to me. You're right. Yeah, just go find Matthew, which is about two-thirds of the way through your Bibles, the first book in the New Testament, and then go backwards. You'll hit Malachi, and then in front of Malachi, you'll hit Zechariah. All right, so grab a Bible. If you don't have one in a seat around you, there are some extras at the back of the room as well. But it'll help you a lot if you, um, if you follow along in, the, in your Bible with us, because we're going to, like I say, finish chapter 9, and we're going to finish chapter 10 this morning as we look at the goat, the greatest of all time, Jesus. Why don't we take a moment and pray first? Oh, Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us. Lord, even as we sang this morning about the greatness of Jesus, I pray, God, that we would have that same unveiling now in your scriptures. Bring understanding. Lord, we, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to teach us, to lead us. There's a lot of things in these passages that are a little confusing, that maybe aren't so clear, but God, may you illuminate. May you direct and instruct this morning. Help us now, we pray. Amen. So, um, Zechariah, I mean, really the whole book is really a book of prophecy in a lot of ways, but especially now as we're hitting kind of 9 and 10 and 11 and finishing off the book, there's a lot of prophecy that starts to happen. And so, um, a lot are about future events. Some of them we'll, we'll see were actually already taken place, such as this prophecy in the first eight verses of chapter 9 that was about Alexander the Great. It was a future event for them, but it's now past for us. Um, there's also going to be some, you know, that are going to be fulfilled, that were, I should say, fulfilled at Christ's first coming, which obviously verse 9 that, that Connor had covered last week or two weeks ago, um, and some are still yet to be fulfilled at Christ's second coming. And so there's a lot of different prophecy going on here, but, and there's also a lot of kind of discrepancy as to how it really gets laid out. And so I, I really like what Warren Wearsby, one commentator, said about these chapters. He said, Bible students may not agree on the interpretation of each detail of these complex prophecies, but they do agree on the greatness of the Christ whose character and ministry are so vividly portrayed here. I think that's, that's so perfect. That really gets to what we're trying to get at this morning. Jesus is the focus here. Jesus is the greatest of all time. And, and though we may not agree on all these act details and the timing, we can agree that the Jesus that is portrayed here is above all others. There's none like him. And so that's going to be our focus this morning, Jesus Christ. And the first thing that we're going to see, Jesus is the greatest of all time, because of his peace. So chapter 9, verse 9, I'm going to pick up where Connor left off in verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now we know this was fulfilled in Christ. All four gospels speak about this event. In fact, two of those gospels also quote this verse, this very verse saying this is how it is fulfilled in Jesus, right? And and Connor already covered a a lot of this verse in detail, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but what I want to do is just simply show, to start us off, that, that the first eight verses, this is verse nine, the first eight verses spoke about a coming king in Alexander the Great, and then we hit chapter nine, or sorry, verse nine of chapter nine that speaks about a different king, about we now know for sure to be King Jesus. And it's really a contrast, I think, that God is kind of pointing out here between these two kings. He's like, here's Alexander the Great, but here's the greatest. Here's Jesus. And if we contrast them, and we need to start here because really the rest of chapter nine and 10 all unfold from this king, it's interesting. The contrast, think about it this way. Alexander's arrival, you think about this, this king that would come in. He brought with him fear. If Alexander was coming to your town, would you be excited? Woohoo, here comes Alex. You'd be like, oh, great, I'm dead. Right? That's, that's, his, his arrival would bring fear. What did the arrival of Jesus bring? What does the verse say? Right off the top, first word. Rejoice. No, don't be afraid, but rejoice is the first thing he says. You, you look at Alexander who would ride, on, ride into a town on a, a, a war horse, a, a symbol of conquering, of power, of war, and he'd come with pomp and pageantry and pride. What does Jesus do? He rides in on a lowly donkey. We're, we're told here in the verse, humble, humble, right? For, he's for the high and for the low, for all people. No show, right? Just, just rode in. Alexander, I love this, he came in to slay his enemies, didn't he? That's what he would come in to do. What did Jesus do? He didn't come to slay his enemies. He came to save his enemies. He died for his enemies. Isn't that crazy? What a contrast. He went to the cross and died for them because ultimately, you know what? Alexander came to conquer and kill. Jesus came to bring peace. He came to bring life. He came to bring salvation because the ultimate enemy to conquer is not our neighbors that are around us, not the peoples around us, not the nations around us. The ultimate enemy is sin and death. And that's what Christ accomplished. When his first, in his first coming, he won a victory over sin and over death by giving his life on the cross and through the resurrection. He brought ultimate peace. Peace with God, first and foremost. Peace with others. We can have peace with others. We can have peace within ourselves. A peace knowing that, that the great enemy, death and sin, has been taken care of. We can live with peace knowing that. Well, he goes on in verse 10 now. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, let me ask you this. Did any chariots or war horses ride through Jerusalem after Jesus' first coming about 2,000 years ago? Were there any war horses that rode through Jerusalem after he came? Any chariots, any armies? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely they did. Right? He also says, he talks about here that he says he shall speak peace to the nations. Is there peace in the nations right now? Some of you are confused. There's no peace. There's no peace right now on earth. It's like, what's going on here? Here's the strange thing. Verse 9 talks about this king that's going to bring peace, and 10 talks about what he will do to bring that peace. Commentators pretty much all agree on this that verse 9 is talking about Christ's first coming. And verse 10 is talking about Christ's second coming, right? That's when he will put an end to war, right? And, to, and he'll bring actual peace on earth. 
There will be peace amongst the nations that he speaks of here. You know, the funny thing is, is that we are actually living, if you think of it this way, currently we are living between verse 9 and verse 10. Isn't that strange? And, and which is funny with the prophets, oftentimes they'll do this. They'll do kind of a zoom in and then a zoom out. And we're going to see that in these chapters here. He kind of zooms in right now for, for kind of looking at this coming king and his first coming and his second coming. And then he's going to zoom out to look at some other history that takes place between those periods. But that's where we're living right now. You know, it's interesting because even the Gospels, if you notice this, the Gospels that quote verse 9 and 10, I think it's Matthew and John, or sorry, that quote only verse 9, I should say, about the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, they all stop with verse 9. They don't go on to say verse 10. They stop under the, I believe, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They didn't quote verse 10 because it's at Christ's first coming that he brought peace with God and it's at his second coming that he's going to bring peace on earth, actual physical peace on earth when he sets up his, his rule and his kingdom from, as the verse said, from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. No more war, no more weapons of war. He'll bring world peace, right? Other passages talk about how they'll beat their weapons of war into like farming. Like there'll be no need, farming tools, because there'll be no need for war weapons anymore. That will come one day. But you gotta know this, it all centers on one king. And it wasn't Alexander the Great. It was Jesus the greatest, right? Jesus, it centers on Jesus. And truthfully, I'll say this, if you lack peace in your life of any sort, if you lack peace in any way in your life, there's only one place to find it. It's not in some government. It's not in some ruler. It's not in more stuff or more money, things. It's only in Jesus Christ that we can find peace. Peace in this world, peace with God, and peace in this life. So Jesus Christ is the greatest of all time because of the peace he brings. And secondly, we see here because of his protection. Look at verse 11. As for you also. So now we're doing this zoom out. Okay, now Zechariah is going to be speaking to the exiles that still had not yet returned to Jerusalem. He says, because of the, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So a waterless pit is not a good place to be. It's bad enough to be in a, like a water cistern, but to be in one that is without water, it means certain death. Eventually, you can't live without water. And so a waterless pit is a picture of, of certain death. You are going to die. And this is probably how maybe some of those exiles perhaps still felt that were in Babylon at this point, kind of going, man, we've been exiled from God. We, we've disobeyed. There's no hope. We're finished. We're finished. We're dead. We're as good as dead. But what does God say here? God says, but I made a covenant by my blood with you. I made a blood covenant. We know that both the Abrahamic covenant, we spoke about this already, and the Mosaic covenant, both had been instituted with blood. They were enacted and instituted, initiated with blood. In fact, with the Abrahamic covenant, if you remember that one, uh, you would cut the two, the two animals would be cut in half, or not two animals, a bunch of animals, would get cut in half, and then the two parties would walk between, to cut a contract, to cut a deal, they'd walk between those animals and make an agreement that basically said, I'll hold up my side of the bargain, and if I don't, I, you can do to me what has been done to these animals that were cut in half. And they'd walk through these animals and do that. And what happened with the Abrahamic covenant? When God made this covenant with Abraham, what happened at that point? God went through, but what did Abraham do? Just like some of you this morning, right? Just fast asleep, right? Just fast asleep. And, and God was the one that passed through between, the, between those animals. And what was God saying? It doesn't count on you. It counts on me. And what is he saying here? Because of the blood of my covenant with you. That's why I'm going to set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. 
I mean, isn't this beautiful? This, I, man, there are so many pictures in the Old Testament that like, we sometimes think it's all the God of wrath and blah, blah, blah. Pfft. Like, you know, listen, the, this is the same God that we worship. And he was full of mercy and goodness in the Old Covenant too. Listen to, like, this is the place. It's just a picture of where all of us are. We're all sinners lost in a waterless pit, right? All of us. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not most, not some, but all have sinned. All of us, folks, every single one of us. And then 6.23, Romans 6.23 tells us what? It says, the wages, the payment that you receive for that sin that all of us have done is death. It's death. That's horrible. Bad news. But I love it that Romans 6.23 doesn't stop there. It has this word, but. I love it. But. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, we were in a waterless pit too. We all were in this place without hope, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ, his new covenant, he has come to rescue us and to save us. What a beautiful thing. And so he pleads with them, and he pleads with us, verse 12. He says, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. This is a great promise. He's calling those that have not yet returned from exile. He says, come back. There'll be restoration. There'll be protection as you return. In fact, he talks about double restoration. It reminds me of Joel 2.25, where, where the prophet Joel says he'll repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten. They, they'd been kicked out. They'd been kicked out of Jerusalem, off into Babylon. Assyria took the, the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom came about 150 years later. All of it gone, destroyed. And he says, I'm going to repay you. I'm going to pay back to you for what the enemy has taken. And it's still true for us. What the enemy has stolen out of your life, maybe, maybe because of your own, maybe your own actions or not, God says, I will repay. I will restore double. That's what he talks about here. Even, you know, what I love here is he even calls us, he calls them, he says, return to your stronghold. What's our stronghold today, you guys? Jesus. Jesus is our stronghold. He says, return to your stronghold, find hope and restoration. Why? Because of his blood. And then he says this, become a prisoner of hope. What a kind of strange thing to say, you know, a prisoner of hope. But that's the truth. You know what? I mean, all of us have a prison of some sort, do we not? Everybody does. Everyone has a prison, a vice, a bondage of some sort that we tend to find ourselves in, that I can't get free of that. And what does God say? You know what? When, you're, when you have Jesus, you're not just a prisoner. You're a prisoner of hope. You're a prisoner of hope because we have hope in Christ. There's hope in Jesus. Even prisoners, of, uh, even prisoners that are prisoners in Christ are prisoners of hope. I love that. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what prison you find yourself in. There is hope because of Jesus. There's hope. And so God says, return, return. You know, I, I, I read this and I thought, you could almost even look at this as like a prisoner of hope. It's almost like you're a hostage of hope. Do you know what I'm saying? If you're a follower of Jesus, you can't help but hope. Too bad, you're a prisoner of hope. Do you know what I'm, That's kind of like what I read it as. We have hope. We have hope no matter where we find ourselves. Jesus will not let us down. 4 verse 13, I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bull, drenched like the corners of the altar." 
So the, the picture that we're getting here is of a battle that takes place that God fights. God fights this battle and there's victory now, feasting and celebration. That's the picture that's given here. It goes on in verse 16. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. Now there was a partial fulfillment of this passage um, when Israel under the Maccabeans revolted against Greece. If you noticed, um, what was it? Verse 13. 13 or 14? 13. He said this. He says, I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. Right? He, he, God would stir this thing up. You see, after Alexander the Great, who we've already talked about this morning a little bit, and Connor talked a lot about a couple weeks back, after he died, he didn't leave his kingdom to, he didn't have a successor. And so what happened? His kingdom got split up. They all fought over his kingdom. And it got divided four different ways. And two of those different dynasties, one was the... Um, the, the Seleucid dynasty of, the, of Syria and the other one was the Ptolemies of Egypt. Those two dynasties, Israel was right between those two and were basically stuck in the middle of this like warfare. It was kind of like the Hatfields versus the McCoys, right? And Israel's right in the middle between these two dynasties that would war against each other and they're getting pulled back and forth and trampled upon. And there was all kinds of colorful characters, we'll just say, that came during that about 200 year period. Some of you have probably heard of Cleopatra, right? She was during that period. She was of Egypt. She was one of those characters. Probably the most notorious character that came during that time was a man named Antiochus IV. And he referred to himself as Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. You know what Epiphanes means? God manifest. That's what he called himself. I am, I am Antiochus, God manifest. And Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes, hated the Jews. He hated them. In fact, he suspended sacrifices, he abolished the Sabbath, he outlawed circumcision, he destroyed vast amounts of the Hebrew scriptures, all kinds of things. He even erected pagan altars all around Jerusalem and Israel. But the worst thing that he did was December 167 BC. You know what he did? He set up an image of Zeus in the temple of the Lord. Then, then it gets even worse. He sacrificed and slaughtered a pig on the altar an unclean animal. I mean, it was, it, was, it was horrible. I mean, he is a picture, an honest, a picture of the Antichrist that would be to come. That's what he is. He's a type or a picture of the Antichrist. What Daniel spoke of is the abomination of desolation. That's what he did. Yet we know that it wasn't totally fulfilled because Jesus speaks of it again and says it will happen again still, right? In Matthew 24, he speaks of it. So he was just a picture of what would be coming. But what happened when he did this is the Jews, it stirred them up. They got so angry with this disgusting act that actually shortly after he did this, there was a, 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 basically a guerrilla warfare that was begun. And it was led by these Maccabean, the sons of, of, the Mac, of, of uh, I think it was Judas Maccabee, that, that rose up and, and fought against Greece. And actually, with supernatural help, really led this guerrilla war that actually brought about 100 years of independence and freedom. So, so that's why you see this, you know, verse 13 says, uh, the sons of Zion against the sons of Greece. And of course, then Rome took over and that changed everything. So partially fulfilled against Greece, for sure, this prophecy. However, ver, uh, the, war, the word Greece in verse 13, though many of your Bibles might translate it as Greece, can also be translated as the world. It's used in other places in the Old Testament as world, picturing the whole world. And so a lot of commentators believe that, yes, this was partially fulfilled against Greece, but really, it's ultimately going to be fulfilled at the second coming of Christ. That's what they would say. And if you notice, 
notice with these verses, I want to read just some of these verses again, beginning at verse 14, speaking about this, this war that would be, be waged against uh, the nations of the world, essentially. Look at what the verse, look at, what, look at what, how, it, how it reads. It's all the victory. You've got to understand this. It's all due to God. Look at verse 14 on it. It says, the Lord will appear over them. The Lord will appear over them. His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet. The Lord will march forth. The Lord of hosts will protect them. And remember, Lord of hosts, not hosts like Martha Stewart. We, we covered this about a month ago, right? But hosts of what? Angels, angels' armies. The Lord of hosts will protect them. On that day, the Lord their God will save them. Do you see who's doing the battling here? Isn't this wild? You know, we, we need to understand something here. The world's, the two largest religions of the world, what are they? There's two. What are they? Christianity, and someone else here said Islam. Christianity is about 31% of the world's population. Islam is about 25% of the world's population. Both of the two, um, the, the largest religions in the world, both religions have what they call holy war. You can read the, 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 the text that they use. Of course, we use the Bible as Christians, and, and it speaks of holy war. We've read about holy war right here. Well, so does the Quran, which is what uh, Islam, Muslims, would read. That's their holy text. However, there's a huge difference between holy wars in those two texts, in those two books. If you think about the holy war of, of the Quran, of Islam, it's called what? Do you know what it's called? Jihad, jihad yeah, a jihad. And, and, and a jihad, it's the responsibility of every good Muslim to fight in a jihad. In fact, there's more honor given if you die while fighting a jihad, right? So this is the idea that is communicated from the Quran. Well, in Christianity, here's the thing. Jesus fights the holy war. God fights the war. Our king fights for his people. You see, we need to understand this. If there is a physical battle to be fought, we need to let the Lord fight it. And I'm not saying that there's not a place for armies, and I'm not saying that there's not a place for police forces, we absolutely need them, 100%, okay? Hear me out there. But, but we don't need them to fight the Lord's battles. We don't need them to, I think it's a little, this is, I think, where the Crusades got off course, right? This horrible thing where they crusaded through and you convert or die. Let God fight that kind of a physical battle. That'll be his job to do, right? And, 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 and we need to let the Lord fight his battle, you know, even if you think about the end times pictures that we have of Christ returning, uh, of the battle of Armageddon and all these other battles, you will never see us picking up a sword in those battles. It actually speaks that Jesus, just with his mouth, just the authority that he speaks, can finish the armies like that. God does all the battling, all the fighting. So we don't, we don't need a Christian army to fight the Lord's battles. How many of you remember the song? Grew up with the song, I'm too young. I'm too young to... That's riding, sorry. March in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I'm too young to fly over land and sea, but I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Yeah, some of you remember that one. Ah, good job. I don't think we teach that anymore. It was all a little bit of the older generation that was singing along with me there. A lot of the younger generation going, this guy's nuts. Yeah, we used to sing that. I remember, in, in, and I would, except for I would rebel at the end of it. I'd always go, G.I. Joe. Because <laughs> I had my G.I. Joe characters and I was so into them. 
And we are a part of the Lord's army. I'm not saying that either. I'm not saying that we're not to be a part of the Lord's army and that we're not to battle. But how do we fight? Yes, yes. You know, we sing that song, The Battle Belongs. Right? Phil Wickham wrote that song, The Battle Belongs. We sing it, we sing it because it's true. So when I fight, how will I fight? I'll fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. This is the message that God really is giving to Zechariah to, to, to give to Israel and to us that it's his battle. He's the one that fights it. So how do we fight? We fight, like you said, in prayer, on our knees. And I think that's something really important that first and foremost, it's especially in this crazy, crazy world that we're living in right now, where we love to, to speak up and we love to shout out and we love to protest. Before you, I'm not saying there isn't a place for those things. We absolutely must. But before we do any of that, we need to be on our knees. That is the, the primary way to fight this crazy battle that we are in right now in this world. To get down on our knees, to lift our hands to God and be, God, help. <laughs> help our leaders. Help them. Lord, remove those leaders, God, that should not be there. God, put into power godly leaders that would lead with wisdom, that would care for, for the, the less than these, that would care for, for the family unit, <laughs> They would respect mom and dad's authority over their children. We need to pray because that's going to do far more than, than the other stuff that we can do. And it's not to say we don't do the other stuff as well. We do stand up and we do petition. We do, we do let people know. But first and foremost, we need to be a people of prayer. We need to fight on our knees because God's, this is God's battle when it comes to a physical battle. So Jesus is the greatest of all time because of his peace, because of his protection, and thirdly, his provision. So kind of continuing with this idea now, we talk about the second coming when this would be kind of fully um, met or fulfilled. Look at verse 17. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Green shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Chapter 10. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. And so we get this picture here now. When Christ rules and reigns, really with this idea of the second coming of Christ, when he fully sets up his kingdom on this earth, there will be an abundance, he talks about here, of provision, of prosperity, right? For everybody. Do you see that? To everyone, he says, the vegetation of the field. You see, the world's idea of equality comes through things like communism or socialism. And both of those are so flawed. You know, you, 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 you tend to get either really rich and really poor or you get everybody really poor. That's what communism is. If you think about it, sure, everybody's equal, but they're equally poor and destitute, right, under communism. God's idea of equality means that there is abundance for everyone. That's what he says here in these verses. There'll be an abundance for everybody, young, uh, old, male, female, for everybody, there'll be an abundance. And he says, why? What did verse 17 say? Because of his goodness and his beauty. Jesus is the source. God is the source of this. And so, so we need to remember that. Jesus is the source of all my provision. And, and so look at what he does next in verse 2. He warns, don't look elsewhere, verse 2. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. He says, look, at the, look false gods aren't going to, come on. What are you doing? False gods aren't the answer. They're not your provider. Look to Jesus. 
Look to God. He is your provider. He is your true shepherd to provide. In fact, look at what he says next in verse 3. He says, my anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. God gets angry when his flock isn't properly cared for. You are his flock. You know that. You're his flock. Yes, you're my flock to a degree, but you are primarily his flock. And he gets really angry with leaders and shepherds that don't care for his flock, that in fact mislead his people sometimes in the wrong direction. You know, I heard about a Christian couple. They were on their way to their wedding, and um, they got into a serious car accident, and both of them died on the way to the wedding. They got to heaven, and uh, the first person they saw was Peter. And Peter comes up to them, and, and they, they, he welcomes them, and they say, you know what, we, we were just on our way to get married. Do you think it would be okay if we got married in heaven? And Peter says, well, sure. I, you know, we've just got a few technicalities that we need to work out first. Just get cleared up. Can you give me about 500 years and then check back with us? They think, 500 years? Well, we've, we've heard that time flies in heaven, so yeah, okay, sure, we can check back in 500 years. So they did, 500 years, and it flew by, it did. So 500 years, years later, they come back to Peter, and, and they say, okay, we're ready, we're ready to get married. Well, Peter replies, I'm sorry, you'll have to give us another 200 years, we're still not ready. 200, well, okay, sure, we'll wait, we'll have patience. Well, after the 200 years, Peter asks for another 100 years. Then after that 100 years, he asks for another 50 years. Finally, the couples kind of had enough. They complained, actually, at this point. They say, Peter, for heaven's sake, why can't we marry? I want to embarrass Peter, told them, look, it's not my fault. How was I to know that it would take this long to get a preacher up here? <laughs> True story. <laughs> Come on, Chris, what are you saying <laughs> I like what Sandy Adams says about this passage, about this verse. And he says this. He says, In Zechariah's day, apparently sincere men of God were in short supply. God wanted his shepherds to lead his people into battle. He wanted pastors who were like royal steeds, like stallions. Instead, they were acting like jackasses. I'm sorry if you were offended that I said stallions. But I mean, honestly, not a lot has changed. If you think about it, really, if you think, like... I mean, it was true then and it's true today. God is serious about his flock and he will judge, he will judge the leaders and the shepherds of his flock. It's very clear in scripture. Even in scripture, it's very clear. He says, he says that he will, pastors, he says, don't presume to be a pastor. I, I myself am a pastor. And he says, Peter, you're going to be judged more strictly. He cares about you so much. That's what he's saying. I care so much about my people, my flock. And he says, I will punish those shepherds that mislead my people, especially these ones here that were misleading them even to false gods, to other ways, to other things. And, and sadly, I think it's, it hasn't changed a lot today. There are still shepherds that are in it for power, right? They're not in it really for the Lord or for the sheep. They're in it for the power. They're in it for, uh, for the fame or the recognition. Even some of it are in it for the money because there is money in some, some forms. I mean, I, I know of... I know of televangelists that have their own private planes because they can't fly in a tube with demons, they'll say. Wait a minute, weren't you supposed to be alongside? Didn't Jesus hang out with the, those people that you won't fly in a tube with? What? Like, it's just crazy. So what will God do about all of this? Well, look at verse 4. He says, From him shall come the cornerstone. 
From him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. What, what does God say? He says, then I'm going to do it myself. Thankfully, Jesus would provide himself as our good shepherd. That's the truth. That's the reality. He fulfills all those roles. You can see really the cornerstone, the tent peg. That would really be more at Jesus' first coming, I would say. The, the cornerstone, the, 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 the foundation that all of us need to build our lives upon. The tent peg would be this peg in the center of the tent that you would, you would be able to hang um, uh, valuable things on. Treasures that you had would hang from that. It was a heavy, big peg right in the middle of the, the center pole. And he's saying, you can hang your life on me, basically. The battle bow and every ruler, that I believe is speaking more about his second coming, still yet to be fulfilled. But it says here, all of them together, Jesus fulfills it all. He does it all. Jesus does it all. And as our good shepherd, he can provide transformation to anyone. Look at what he does in verse 5. Look at what he says here. He says, they, speaking now of the Lord's flock, shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. Now, some speak of this as kind of referring perhaps to maybe even, again, that time of the Maccabees. We don't know for sure. I don't know exactly how it lays out, but I think the point is this that if you want to be victorious, if you want to be victorious in this life, there's only one source. There's only one provider. It's Jesus that will bring victory, no matter where you're at, no matter what you find yourself stuck in. They, don't forget, had been worshiping idols. They'd been praying to other gods, and he still said to return, and I will give you victory. I'll give you victory, no matter where you find yourself. If you make Jesus the cornerstone of your life, you can be victorious in this life. He'll provide all that you need. Well, finally, we see Jesus is the greatest of all time because he pulls together his people. Really, it's he regathers his people, but I needed a P. So I don't need a P right now. I needed a P for the message. I shouldn't say any more. Let's just... Right? Because, you know, because it's peace and then protection, provision... There's no regathers that works with a P, so I had to say pulls together. It's just goofy, but it, I need P's. So anyway. Anyway, verse 6. Let's just continue on here. <laughs> Moving along, that's right. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion, or other translations say mercy, on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. This is really good, no good news here. I mean, they had like the most horrible past. Any of you have a horrible past? Whew. I'm alone up here with this one, okay. They had a bad past. They, they had such a bad past, they got kicked out of the land. God said, I'm going to kick out the Amorites because of their evil, and then eventually he says to Israel, because of your evil, I'm going to kick you out too. They got kicked out of the land. They had a bad past. Seven years they're kicked out. And what did God say? He says, I'll still bring you back. I'll still bring you back. And, and it goes on. Why will I bring you back? Number one, because I have compassion. Or I have mercy. Mercy just means not give you what you deserve. I won't give you what you deserve. In fact, this is crazy. What does he say? It'll be as though I had not rejected them. It'll be as though you didn't even do all that bad stuff. <gasps> Again, isn't this just a picture of Jesus? This isn't the Old Testament, folks. This isn't, this isn't Ephesians or something that we're reading here. This is God, the God that loves us. This is just the Old Testament version of the prodigal son story, really. I mean, what a picture of our salvation. He does the same for us. He regathers or pulls together wherever we may be. He pulls us back together wherever we've gone, wherever we've wandered off to. And then what does he do? He clothes us 
in his righteousness. You think of the prodigal's son story. What are, you know, he put the robe, get, get the robe, put the robe on my son. He's returned. That's what he does. He clothes us in his righteousness. The, the, the term is actually like a bank term. Like it's credited to our account. By the way, your account is in arrears right now. It's negative if you don't know Jesus. Zero, below, negative, you owe. But it says that he credits his righteousness to our account. He clothes us in his righteousness. Our, our past is wiped clean. It'll be as though I hadn't even rejected you, God says. It'll be as though you never even did that stuff. You'll be forgiven. You'll be, the, the, the term that the Bible uses is a word called justified. You are justified. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you are justified. And you may be like, great, I'm justified. No, this is really great. Because you know what justified means? You just break the word down. It's just as if I'd never sinned at all. That's what that word means. And that's what God declares over you because of the righteousness of Christ. He says this, it'll be as though I'd never rejected them. I will answer you, he says, if you just call out to me. Continues in verse seven. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. Now, though this pulling back together or regathering uh, was partially fulfilled after the exile, there were a number that returned from Babylon and did return to Jerusalem, but the ultimate fulfillment is going to be when Christ returns. That's when we're going to see he sets up his kingdom. He's going to pull them all back together. You know this, that in 70 AD, the Romans came into Jerusalem, sacked Jerusalem. What happened to the Jews? They all fled. They had to take off. Uh, what's known as the diaspora, right? They got spread all over the world, dispersed all over the world. What's amazing is that normally when that would happen, the peoples that you get spread and you would just assimilate. It's like eventually it's, you know, like, like my ancestors, you know, my mom, her, her past is like German, Russian. My dad is like Welsh. Well, now it's just Canadian. You just assimilate. You become a part of the, the peoples and the, 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 the nation that you move into. For 2,000 years, the Jews remained Jews. They went to Russia. They were still Jews. They went to Germany. They were still Jews. Hungary, Jews. New York City, they're still Jews. Do you see this? This is miraculous. And after 2,000 years of exile, 2,000 years, they still know who they are. They're coming back. They're being pulled back together. As God now describes the regathering more, look at all the I will. I've already read a bunch of I wills, but look how many there are still. Verse 8, he says, I will whistle for them and gather them in. So it won't be like a, it'll be like a, right? Like, come here kind of thing, right? Come in. Come on. He says, I'll whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, not just Babylon, but the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there's no room for them. It's interesting, Gilead that's mentioned here is also known, it's actually the Golan Heights. You ever heard of the Golan Heights? That ever disputed territory in Israel? It's interesting because the UN and, and the Palestinians, they, they want Israel to evacuate the Golan Heights. And what does God say? He's like, I'm going to fill it so full of Jews there won't be enough room. Interesting. Verse 11, he shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waters of the sea and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. 
This will be during Christ's second coming, during his millennial reign, and when he sets up his kingdom fully on this earth, which Zechariah later in the book is actually going to get into. It'll be really interesting. It'll be kind of fun. But when the Jews are gathered back, here's the key thing is they are going to look and they're going to see Jesus and they're going to recognize Jesus as the king, as their Messiah. You know, even the language that's used here in this passage, it describes it almost like like a second exodus. Did you pick up on that? Passing through the waters and drying the rivers, all these things. God's communicating by this. He's saying it's going to be miraculous. And, And if you really look, you know, much of the return to Israel by the Jews that we are seeing today is absolutely miraculous. It is. But the key with this passage is it says that they will walk in his name. They'll recognize, we're going to see this later in Zechariah, they'll recognize Jesus as the one whom they had pierced. They'll recognize Jesus as the Messiah. So it's, it's, it's not just that they'll return to the land, but they'll, they'll return to the land with a belief and a faith in Jesus Christ. That's ultimately what's going to happen. The King, the Messiah. Now here's the thing, all these promises of blessings. This is really, the, the last half of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10 is really speaks about all these incredible blessings that are to come upon Israel. They're all from this coming king that was declared in verse 9 of chapter 9, from Jesus. All these blessings of peace and protection and provision and pulling back together, regathering. But what's interesting is we're going to see in chapter 11, if you turn the page to chapter 11, we're going to, we've got time. No? No, we're not, we're not going to do chapter 11 this morning. <laughs> Next week, we'll get into chapter 11. I'm too hot. Is it hot out there? Yeah. Oh, some said no. Some said yeah. Okay. Anyway, so it's just right, in other words. Um, we're going to see, though, in chapter 11, we're actually going to see some of the reason for the delay. There's why did these blessings not come upon them right then and there and, and, and in the years to come? There was a delay, and we're going to see some of the reason that Israel is waiting for the ultimate fulfillment to take place. But I want you to know this this morning. In Christ, we can experience many of those blessings right now. And so as we close this morning, I want you to know this. King Jesus has come. King Jesus has come, and he's coming again. And he offers you today his peace and his protection and his provision. But just like like one day the Jews will have to be regathered and pulled back together and returned, Jesus is calling all of us today to return to return wherever you might be. He says, return. Because just like he said in chapter 9 and 10, he says, because of the blood of my covenant, I have compassion. I have mercy on you. You see, Jesus, is, he's truly the greatest of all time. Think about it. We were the ones that wandered. We're the ones that left. All of us like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah said. All of us, we're all in that same boat. And what does he do? He gives himself in our place for the wrongs we've committed to make a way back. And I just want you to know this this morning, that he is calling you to return. He's calling you to have your own prodigal story, perhaps, right now. Wherever you have gone or whatever you have done. And so I just want us to close this morning. Uh, We're just going to close just by listening to God for a few moments here. By allowing God to speak. You know, what is he saying to you this morning? What is he speaking to you? Where is he calling you right now to return from? Where is he calling you to return? Saying, come back. You've wandered over here. You've wandered over there. You've given this piece of your heart to this. It's time to return. I just want us to take time right now. Just close our eyes. And just, just position ourselves before the Lord to hear. However that works for you, if you need to open your hands or maybe get out a pen and paper. But Jesus, we invite you right now to speak. In light of the blood of your covenant, in light of the work that you did, Jesus, 
your goodness and your favor and your mercy and your blessing over our lives. Lord, all of us, myself included, we can wander, we can stray. Lord, where, where are you calling us back from this week? What is it maybe you want to convict us right now, maybe of some sort of sin? Maybe you want to convict us of, of attitudes or mindsets. Maybe it's the way we've been speaking to our spouse. Maybe it's the way we've been thinking about them. Maybe it's the way we've been looking at someone else or whatever it would be, God. We just invite you right now, Holy Spirit, to call us back wherever we might be. Just begin to speak your love again to us, the reminder of your covenant, of your blood that speaks a better word. And so we take time right now just to listen, just for a few moments here. Holy Spirit, come and speak. So, Father, I want to start by giving you thanks. I give you thanks that, that though like Israel, we... I used to think Israel was so idiotic. I just realize now I am just like Israel, if not worse. And yet you call us back because of your blood of the covenant. You call us back. You say, come back. I'm going to make it so that you never even left. I'm going to bless you so that it, it never even was like you were rejected at one time. Because of the greatness of who you are, Jesus, we want to return. We want to come back. And so right now, God, I just confess, Lord, I know there's things that even as we waited there, that there was things that you brought up into my heart, you dropped into my heart of just that I need to, I need to repent of. And I repent of that, Lord, and I come back to you wholeheartedly, please. I come back to you and I say, Jesus, take me again. Use me again for your glory, for your kingdom purposes, God, that, Lord, though we're living between verse 9 and 10, help me to do better at setting up your kingdom in the meantime. May your kingdom come in my life and here on this earth in the meantime. Jesus, use us. Use us as, as a flock that follows you to care for one another, to care for this world, to care for our neighbors, to literally be Jesus to those around us. And so continue to speak to us, Lord, as we go from this place, as we go into our workplaces, into our homes, into our relationships, God. Use us, Lord to speak life and hope, God, that we would help others to become prisoners of hope in the days that we're living in. Jesus, we love you. We bless your name. And may you just, I just pray blessing over each and every person here. God, I pray that they would walk in your ways and in your truth. May they know your voice. May they hunger for your word. Amen. Amen. Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive 
receive our What's Happening email. We send this out once a week. It's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online. Apart from that, there is a give button. So if you're feeling led, you can do that right online through our website. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube. We are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that God's going to do something special in you through today's message. Enjoy. Enjoy.